welcome to the Natural Selection, where this week's theme is museums. Hello listeners, welcome back. Nick, would you like to tell them who we are? Yeah, we're the Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who want to bring their passion for nature into the wild. Each week we gather and wax lyrical about the natural world. In the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting research from the past week. In the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is museums. So yeah, now you know what we do. I suppose you should meet the team. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am also Nick. Hello. How are you all doing? Not too bad. Yeah, I hear you moved house this week, Nick. I did, again, yeah. Is it nearer nature? It's nearer nature. Uh, There's a lot of little parks, which is nice. That is nice. Um, and on the ground floor, so in a lot of respects, nearer to ground-dwelling nature, but less near birds. I can definitely see a tree right now out my window. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> that is life. How are you doing, Naomi? I hear you return to work. Yeah, I do well. Back to work, getting used to the fact that days mean something. But yeah, no, it's good. Went out for a picnic yesterday, enjoyed the park. That was nice. Lots of pigeons and magpies were the main things that I saw in my nature. Well, that yeah. sounds fun. How about you, Nick? How are you doing? I'm all right. I saw a stag beetle. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I walked to the top of a hill, and just when I lost motivation, I saw a stag beetle. That'll get you going. Yeah, it really did. So that was nice. But yeah, I'm good. So I suppose we should get on with the news. You guys up for that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so join us in a couple of seconds. We'll be back with our nature news. Welcome back, listeners. So in this section, we talk about all the nature news we've discovered from this week. So, Naomi, I believe you found something pretty cool. Yes. So this is an interesting news topic that I found this week. So this was some research that was done at the end of July, and it was published in Science. So just a little bit of backstory on the subject species that we're talking about in this paper. So this paper looks at anglerfish. And just to give a little bit of understanding of what this research actually means, some species of anglerfish undergo what is called sexual parasitism. Basically, what this means is, in this case, the male fish attaches itself onto the female fish and becomes fused into her body. This is an adaptation that they have because they live in the deep sea and it can be really hard to find each other. I feel like um, I know a couple of guys like that. (laughs) we'll wait for my next description um in a sense in a sense male anglerfish of these species can almost be considered a pair of testicles attached to nostrils because they have such reduced like systems they they effectively only function is the sex organs and their ability to seek out the female anglerfish so they they fuse onto these the female anglerfish I'm actually surprised it's something we haven't talked about before. It definitely seems like a species we'd love to talk about. but <laughs> More than the night parrot? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so th- the news is that they actually have an immune system quirk 
that allows them to do this. Because in, in human cases and in other animals, if you say get an organ transplant, the immune system can have a really strong response. So it can be difficult because your immune system is attacking this foreign body. But actually, yeah, these species that I looked at have lost these genes for their immune system. So they, depending on the species, there's some that the males attach and then leave again. And there's some where multiple males attach and stay attached. So in those species, they've got even more of a reduced immune system. They've lost even more genes. They've lost the ones that allow them to produce antibodies. And um, so this would be allowing you to recognize a pathogen and then respond to it again the next time you get a pathogen. So that's how our immunity works most of the time. But they don't have it. And um, so this article, unfortunately, it wasn't really able to do any any experiments based on this because this was kind of not something I, I think that they were expecting. So they haven't actually looked into what kind of immune system they have if they have something else if they're just able to switch off certain parts of it and they can protect themselves in other ways but it's a really interesting adaptation that they have to to do this and it shows I guess in a way that they're prioritizing mating above their immune system I feel like we're gonna start getting targeted ads that are like you know those ones that say like this local mom discovered a crazy trick that makes dermatologists hate her, but it's gonna be like this local fish discovered a crazy trick that makes immunologists hate him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. And um, like even the, this article has a quote from the researcher that they say that if it was someone else they were diagnosing that they would say they'd have a se- severe combined immunodeficiency. Uh, that it would be like a fatal prognosis. <laughs> so oh yeah, no idea how they managed to to do other to figure out their immune system with those things, but it's cool. Yeah, I did want to say because I I do feel like I have as a human probably prioritized mating over my immune system because there's been many times where I've been in an awful dive bar like that's smoky. It's far too late, and I really should go home. But I'm like, but they are very pretty. I feel like just the a, a dance floor makeout by itself, like with a stranger, is a act of yeah. prioritizing mating over um, your immune <laughs> system. <laughs> I think it's sweet that you think I have enough moves to impress someone on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, my dance is its own immune system. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of me in a bar. Uh, Nick, I believe you have some news of the oldest life on Earth. <laughs> I do. I do. Research, a paper came out in Nature this week about what could be the oldest life ever discovered. Um, they found uh, microbes in over a million year old sediment at the bottom of the seafloor, like three and a half miles down, 5,300 meters or something. And they started feeding it basic thing they found if they weren't sure if there were going to be any bacteria in this um soil in the sediment so they started feeding nutrients just in case and it turns out that there were some in this really old sediment layer it started multiplying like super fast it just sort of like kicked into gear when it got these nutrients because down at the bottom of the seafloor there's very little oxygen and very little any sort of nutrients uh in this sediment so they were wondering if anything could actually grow there it turns out yes it can or it can just survive. It's unclear at this point whether it was lying dormant for a hundred million years or whether it was like slowly, slowly dividing. Uh, and the cool quote from one of the researchers from Professor Steve DeHunt, 
uh, who's an oceanographer at the University of Rhode Island uh, and co-authored the study, he said, if they're not dividing at all, they're living for a hundred million years. But that seems insane. <laughs> um, could science find out what they're doing and tell my potted plants how to do this? I feel it's a bit unfair that they can find the most inhospitable environment on Earth and there'll be things living in it. But I will literally pamper everything in my flat and it will just die. <laughs> Am I less hospitable than the bottom of the ocean? Is that what you're saying? Could be. Or one of those like sulfur boiling water vents or like the moon. Like, you know. <laughs> so I have some bad news. Oh. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, depending on gotta bring us down. Yeah, that's my job. Um, you guys were smiling too much, so I thought I'd, <laughs> I'd tell you the bad news. So there was, um, do you know the Red List, the IUCN Red List? So yeah. what the Red List do, um, they assess how endangered species are, and they just release a report into Britain's mammals, Britain's native mammals. And what they found is that over 40% are at risk of imminent extinction. 40% of Britain's mammals? Yes, native mammals, yes. Oh, crap. Wow. Yeah. Uh, if you were looking for, you guys had good quotes. I feel like my quote throws just the right amount of shade at our ability to look after animals, which is, this is Professor Fiona Matthews who led this report, which was, while we bemoan the demise of wildlife in other parts of the world, here in Britain, we are managing to send even rodents towards extinction. <laughs> God. Oh, wow. So it's not good news due to bad land management and sort of loss of habitat. For example, hedgehogs have declined at least 46% over the last 13 years. So where their population was about 13 years ago, uh, a million, it's now around 500,000. Wow. Yeah, which is about the same population as Leicester. I say we just give the hedgehogs Leicester. I was just going to say they should all be living together, really. Yeah, we could film it. It would it would pay for itself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's grim. <laughs> Do you know what I found very odd? Was they had one species which was regionally extinct, which is the European wolf. But mm. I feel we have lots of regionally extinct mammals, so I need to uh, read that a lot closer to understand why they singled out the European wolf in that instance. Mm. Mm. I wonder if it's to do with time, time scale, because I think they tend to be pre or post glaciation like stuff that they say is like our fault versus not our fault yeah bears are our fault aren't they god if we were if we're responsible for bears (laughs) 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 i read Uh, something this week that said that polar bears were likely to be completely out of habitat by by 2100 is that what we're going to call that year 2100 well, not to be grim, but, like, we are probably not going to do anything with it. <laughs> Jesus, nice. Okay. okay. I mean, you're right, but, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just got to bring in our immortality. And to be fair, I am a British mammal, so I'm inherently at risk at all times. <laughs> you guys are all right, but I've got, like, a 46% chance of imminent extinction. <laughs> Yeah, so that was my terrible news. I think that was a good way to finish off. Should we meet back after this break and talk about our theme? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so join us in a couple of seconds where we'll be talking about museums. 
Welcome back, listeners. So we are here to talk about museums. I thought I'd start off our theme with a few interesting firsts. Quick question for you two. I do like to quiz you early on. When do you think the first museum was opened? 1864. That was just a guess. I think Uh, earlier than that, because the first university was like real old. I imagine a museum maybe like go similar with that. I'm going to say like 1071. Okay, that's a pretty good guess. Uh, You are closer than Nick, but Naomi, you're about 1,500 years off. They think, and there's, it's not confirmed, it's a presumption, that the earliest museum ever, they think, was somewhere called the Enigaldi Nana's Museum. And this was in what is now Iraq, but it was in ancient Ur, and it dates back to about 530 BCE. Amazing. And what they found is when they excavated it, there were these objects arranged very neatly, but they were all from different times. And they all had labels next to them. And when they transcribed the labels, they were describing the objects in three different languages. Oh, my God. Wow. So, yeah. So it was, um, it was I think, the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonians. And it would have been Princess Enigaldi. And she would have been influenced her by her father, who also helped collect some of these objects. But she had the first museum. Wow. So I'm now going to take a big time jump for you, because obviously we didn't really catch up to this for a long, long time. And you guys are much more close with your, your guesses as to when sort of modern museums came to be. The first natural history museum was arguably a private one. So it would have been things like cabinets of curiosity, where rich people just sort of bought stuff. So they could show their friends. And they think the earliest one of these relating to natural history was by Conrad Gessner. And it was opened in Zurich. But the first museum to allow public access, they think, was actually in England. And it was in 1683 when it was opened to the public. And it was the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Cool. Which you can still visit today. Good thinking with the schools, Naomi. Well, I was like still a fair bit off, but, you know. So while that was the first to open, which is in 1683, the Natural History Museum in Paris was actually established first, which is in 1635. And that's still around today. And it's probably the oldest museum as to what we would understand as our concept of a natural history museum. But they didn't open to the public. So it begs that question of like, what was a museum for? And it was basically for professionals. It wasn't for any sort of entertainment. It was a sort of reference point in the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, where all these experts could come and look at these objects. So it's sort of a very abstract idea of what we would understand as a museum. It's it's very sort of private club for very, very rich people who wanted to be able to go and do scientific study on these objects in these big grand buildings. It wasn't until much later when they realised that there was a, a sort of burgeoning middle class that people would actually come from far and wide to see these objects in a museum. And one of the big driving forces behind this was zoos. Once they realised there was an audience for people to come see animals in zoos, then museums started opening their doors as a way to make money as well, where they could come and look at the objects. I think that that idea that like a lot of things started as cabinets of curiosity makes sense as to why some collections are so like odd as well. That you know people just like collected all these things for prestige or because they could. Well, the Natural History Museum in London, which is where we all met, that was actually based on an individual's collection, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, is Hans Sloan. He's got a whole subway stop named after him. Yes, Sloan Square. 
And by Subway, I mean tubes. Sandwiches, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Sloan Square is named after him. He's also responsible for bringing um, what we would know as modern hot chocolate to like Britain and Europe. I know, right? Isn't that such a cool combination of things? He provided to us hot chocolate and the Natural History Museum. Yeah. <laughs> you can and get a two for one if you go to the ice rink in Christmas outside of the Natural History Museum. Get some hot chocolate, have a little skate. Yeah. So that's probably the skating is probably like a different that's more Hans Christian Andersen than Hans Sloan. <laughs> but yeah, in the collection of the Natural History Museum, there's still his objects. They still store them and look at them. And they've even digitized some so you can find them online. But they actually are older than the museum. They were collected before the museum existed as a concept. He was just collecting them for fun. And he would send letters to his friends who were traveling to different countries and ask them to bring back things for him. Mm. Yeah. Do you know where he was from? Mm-mm. It sounds German, though. Hans. Doesn't it? Um, he's actually from, well, what is now Northern Ireland. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I feel like he might be Northern Irish, but I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah. So there's not many, as far as I understand, Irish hands. Not that I know of. No. So uh, that somewhat threw me when I saw that as well. <laughs> Ireland is now almost entirely hands-free. Uh, but it does mean that, yeah, because they were private collections, you do get some weird objects in museums. Yeah, so I have found some pretty cool examples of um, things that you would find in a natural history museum. I'll, I will start with a weird one because you, you, you led me in with that one. But um, there is the skin of Benjamin Bunny on display in the Beatrix Potter Gallery. So after her pet rabbit died, um, she skinned him. As so that do. she could, yeah. So, well, apparently it was actually kind of common at the time, but she skinned him so that she could get more accurate illustrations in the future for like future books. But yeah, so it's it's on display. Um, Dedication. Mm. Yeah, to be fair, her later books are really dark. <laughs> mm, really? Yeah. Oh, it's just a skinned rabbit doing these adventures. Oh. <laughs> uh, another cool specimen that is on display in a museum is Dolly the Sheep. Have you guys heard of Dolly? Mm. Well, she was the first sheep to be cloned. Yeah, yeah isn't that, that's not that impressive because first... there's loads of her. <laughs> and she was the first cloned mammal Whoa. to be created from an adult cell. Yeah. I've seen her um, poo. Oh, very nice. Is she in the Dublin Museum? She Edinburgh. is in, um, yeah, Scotland. Edinburgh. Yeah, National Museum of Scotland. She's Scottish. Or is she Welsh? That's racist, Naomi. Well, the Welsh ram. I think we might both be right then. I think she was cloned in Scotland. I think she was cloned in Scotland, yeah. Because, yeah, it was it was associated with the... I can't remember what the institute was called. Oh. Not all sheep are Welsh, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to dick myself out of this one. So another really cool uh, specimen that we've all seen, because it's in the Natural History Museum of London, um, is Sophie the Stegosaurus. So I want to talk a little bit about this specimen because it's it's the best preserved stegosaur skeleton, probably one of the best dinosaur fossils. So it was found in 2004, oh sorry, 2003 um, in modern day Wyoming. And it was put on display in 2014 in the Natural History Museum in London. What's great about this uh, specimen as well is that it's very much preserved 
in its original shape. So there's no flattening or compression as there is in other fossils. So they've been able to do a lot of scanning and 3D photography of it. So they're able to get full brain scans of it. They're able to have a look at the, the structure of the jaw and different parts of her body. Well, I call her Sophie, but we actually don't know what gender she is. She could be male or female. Apparently, the only way to tell with a dinosaur is if they actually have eggs in their body. Whoa. Yeah. I actually know something around that. Oh, yeah. You're right. But there was one T-Rex that had such well-preserved thigh bone, they were able to tell her sex. Uh And that was because when chickens produce eggs, it actually changes the internal structure of of their thigh. And what they found is when they looked in this T-Rex's thigh, it was displaying exactly the same thing as a chicken that was making eggs. Whoa. Oh, cool. Yeah, so uh, that's one cool thing you find from fossils. Oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realise. So I take it back. You can also find find out of their, their gender from that too. Um, but yeah, so uh, this is a really cool fossil. She's, I think, somewhere, I, I want to say about 80% complete, but basically she's the fossil is almost fully complete except for... I think it's the right leg. So they, they really get to able to get a good idea of what the stegosaurus would have looked like. This is great because about a f- only about a fifth of dinosaurs are actually described from almost complete fossils or like pieced together fossils from multiple dinosaurs. So it helps a mm. lot our understanding of dinosaurs. So stegosauruses would have been around about 150 million years ago. That's just a little bit older than our microbes in that sediment from the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. she's not lasted as well no she's aged badly compared to them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they um, lost 20 percent of her yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. so well while you guys were talking i did some research and uh it turns out that dolly uh was cloned in scotland but she is a half dorset horn you can guess where they're from uh half fin sheep breed so she's half english half finnish Ah, cool. So it was just racism, Naomi. <laughs> I I don't know. I thought I saw some somewhere Welsh round. No, no, we know what you thought. You saw Dorset's <laughs> close to Wales, and you were like, it's Welsh. Yeah. Oh, do you know what it was? Her um. Yeah, yeah, we do. Her... We do, Naomi. It's your prejudice. <laughs> no, her her mate was. I was like, I definitely saw Welsh. And oh, she's got a Welsh was... friend. She has a Welsh. <laughs> She's got Welsh friends, so it's fine. It's, it's fine. <laughs> okay, never mind. Some of our best friends are Welsh. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, was, I was convinced I'd seen it somewhere, but now I know what it is. I'm sorry that I misrepresented her nationality. Yeah, I, I uh, never thought we'd have to <laughs> apologise to the entire nation of Wales. But um, <laughs> Naomi is clearly very sorry. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh yeah, the Stegosaurus. I think I was finished with that. Oh, I like that she was 160 million years old. Because isn't it? We are in time distance. We are closer to T Rexes as a species than T Rexes are to Stegosaurus. There's a much bigger time gap between a Stegosaurus mm. and a T Rex than there is between a T Rex and us. If if the T Rex is at the end of the Cretaceous and the Stegosaurus is at the beginning of the Jurassic. Yeah. yeah. Then yes. Do you know how stegosauruses have sex? No. That is the correct answer. No one does. Oh. They can't figure out how they did it with those spines. 
Hmm. They there is no way they couldn't be in the way. Intriguing, yeah. So they're not sure because there's no species like them, obviously, around now, and they're related to species that still exist. But looking at the species which still exist and how they mate, there's no way that if they had massive spines on their back, that they would be able to mate that way. So they're really not sure how Stegosaurus mate. Cool. And another specimen that I found that was really well preserved and gave a really great indication into our understanding of evolution and a, a big step in evolution is Archaeopteryx. Um, so I wanted to talk about this specimen because it was a really big leap between understanding that birds evolved from dinosaurs. Um, so Archaeopteryx is kind of somewhere in the middle of between reptiles and birds. From my understanding, it's probably actually a little bit closer to reptiles, but it does have wings and it is feathery. But it's a really cool specimen. There are a couple of them. There's five, I believe. Uh, one of them is in the Natural History Museum in London. And I think the other four are in Germany. But they're really beautifully preserved uh, fossils. They, I think, effectively fell into like a swamp sort of marsh. And they were preserved. Like you can see the feather detail. They're, they're really amazing. Considering fossilization is such a rare and like difficult process, you can see so much detail in them we've seen the original mm. yes it's such a beautiful fossil it is it's, mm. it's in its own special room in the you're going to need to pronounce this for me uh nick it's in its own special room in the museum for naturkunde yeah and it's sort of blacked out with these special spotlights uh that go onto it and you go into this tiny little room this tiny little fossil of an archaeopteryx and you stare at it for ages and think that's exactly what you do it's true. Um, I once um, went in there and there was a small child there asking what it was. And then I gave him an all too lengthy uh, explanation for someone who in no way worked for that museum. <laughs> <laughs> he was with his mum, who was really interested in what I was saying. But I think he regretted asking. <laughs> At least someone was into it. I know. I was thinking when I was a kid, I loved dinosaurs. So I was just like unleashing all my dinosaur and sort of related facts on him, even though it's not a dinosaur. But yeah, I, was, I told him all about it. But yeah, it's, it's beautifully displayed. It's a, it's a wonderful specimen mm. and an unusual one to look at because you can really clearly see its feathers and it sort of goes everything you understand about reptiles mm. instinctively. Because even now there's problems with the way museums display things. In the Natural History Museum, I know they had a animatronic T-Rex head. Mm. But what they discovered was that T-Rexes on their head almost certainly had feathers. Ah. But no museum will display a T-Rex with feathers because, one, that's not what we expect to see, and two, it doesn't look very dramatic. Mm. It sort of takes the edge off how scary it was. So this is sort of compromise between entertainment and realism that a lot of museums sort of play, play with. And this can come to the crux when it comes to things like feathered dinosaurs, which we now know were exceptionally common. Like velociraptors were covered in feathers. I mean, imagine if they, they showed a museum exhibit of us in the future, the three of us, and what they did was basically the same thing. They showed us as skinheads. We would feel pretty, I don't know, that would make us seem like kind of scary. Hmm. It would be better if we had um, our hair on our heads for our exhibits. Yeah. <laughs> 
I really love that specimen in the in the of the, both the one in the Naturalist Museum and the one here in Berlin of the Archaeopteryx. There are so, like so many there are so many amazing specimens, obviously because museums are filled with specimens, but some that really stand out like that one because they tell a, like a key moment in a story of evolution or history or something. But I think there are also some like the opposite of that that really that's sort of like the underdog specimens that I love too. In the Naturalist Museum in London, there's a room filled with the spirits collection, which is like the jars filled with alcohol. And it has like a huge range of all the different animals. No wonder that's your favorite. The spirits collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where are your jars filled with alcohol? Um, right. You have a, sorry, did you say you have an ethanol tap? <laughs> At the, in the very end of this room, in the very back of the museum, is a jar. And inside the jar is a big, giant brown rat, like probably the size of like a softball. I don't know what that's, I don't know oh. what that is. It's okay, about the like, eighth the size of an ocelot. Yep, yeah, oh. right, right. It's the size of a croissant, a nice big one. <laughs> okay, so uh, it looks just like a, you know, it's part of the collections. It's in the collections, and there's a label inside. And when you look at the label, it says, Rattus Norwegicus, brown rat, found outside the Darwin Spirit Collection, Natural History Museum, 2004. So someone found it <laughs> outside the Natural History Museum and just brought it right inside put it in a jar, and now it's literally going to be there unless the museum gets destroyed forever. <laughs> um, it, but I love that because it's like now there's something super local that is part of a historic collection that's like one in like this huge, I don't know, it, it takes on just as much importance as the Archaeopteryx um, in the archive. I like that. that is of course, cool. some collections of things are also like important because of who collected them like we were talking earlier about the Hans Sloan collection in the paleontological collection in the mammal department or sorry in the earth sciences department in the mammal paleontological collection is a bunch of are a bunch of fossils that Darwin collected during his voyage on the beagle so those are both interesting because they're sort of the first fossils that came back from the west uh, during the era of sort of natural history exploration but they're also Darwin's fossils. They're interesting, even just because he was the one that found them and, and sent them back. So that, that sort of has like this human historical extra layer on top of natural history. Which I, think I is found one in a drawer once. By accident? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I, I was in a, I was lucky enough to be in the Natural History Museum rooms where they kept the Bryozoans. And I opened a drawer and it just said collected by Charles Darwin. Cool. Yeah, and like you say, it's the human history, because I don't remember what that specimen was at all. But I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, he's touched this. But I can see why they kept them in a drawer, to be honest, because even though Charles Darwin collected them, they're not something that you'd really want to put on display in a museum. They're not going to bring in a big crowd because it's just on a mm. test tube. One of the things that Darwin did collect that um, is pretty amazing is a ground sloth fossil. Uh, and there's a huge cast model of one outside the the paleontolo paleontological collection. It's like the size of a giraffe or something. It's really tall. Not a giraffe. That's too tall. Um, it's big. And <laughs> it's just like standing up there. Look, It's pretty iconic. But there's a deep buried in the collections in a vacuum sealed bag uh, is one of the coolest specimens I've ever seen, which is a ground sloth fur. Um, mm. It's like the hide of a ground sloth. 
uh, and it's this beautiful, coarse, thick fur that's, it looks like it's just, just been taken out of a, like a place where you get furs. I don't know what that's called. Um, I believe they're called a furrier. A furrier. It's like, it's just taken out of a furrier. It's this beautiful golden fur. Um, but they, it was found in a cave in South America. And when people found it, they thought that it meant that the thing was still alive somewhere in the Amazon because it was so well-preserved. Uh, there's, there's no way that this has been sitting around for what they thought had been extinct for over 10,000 years. So it was a bit of a shock, but it, it has, it has, it is actually extinct. No fear. But that's one of my favorite specimens in the Natural History Museum. Do you guys have any favorite specimens? Wow. that's a good... I have to say, I do really like that display of the ground sloth. That is, even though that one is just a cast. Um, but yeah, that that is a really cool one. Um, I have another one. It's sort of a weird, um, it is in the Natural History Museum. It's sort of a weird display. And I'm not sure if it's particularly my favorite, but it is one that I think is 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 interesting to look at because it's sort of... Um, leads into the museums as a tool for learning which I think is, is some of my favorite things about a museum and then it's a specimen of a, the head of an owl but it's got a pencil sticking out of its ear I also like it because it's kind of silly but the purpose of it is basically to show so this is a, spe- a species of owl that has ear tufts but it's to show that the ears are actually on the side of the head and not up where the ear tufts are hmm. I'm telling a favorites that I have I tend to like museum objects which make you think. There's an ostrich on display in the Natural History Museum London, which I really, really like to look at because when you look at its foot, you can really see how they are related to dinosaurs. And Mm. for a lot of people who find that quite jarring because they see things like robins or, you know, skylarks out there. And like, how is that like a T-Rex? If you take them and show them this ostrich foot, they're like, oh, I get it. That is a very dinosaur foot mm. but other than that uh i quite like hope hope is beautiful yeah it mm. really great really great specimen i like hope is the giant blue whale in the main hall in the natural history museum and she is a blue whale and it's not a fossil it's, it's bones because blue whales are still alive and they're the largest animal as far as we know that has ever existed mm. and she replaced dippy for a number of reasons, uh, Diffie is very, very old, but also to highlight the problems facing current animals and to show the impressiveness of them. But also because it's dangling from the ceiling, probably opened up a fair bit of uh, floor space. Mm, yeah. 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 But yeah, so she's called Hope. Do you guys know why? No. So she was named Hope uh, behind the scenes when they were cleaning up for presentation because it's to relating to climate change and that they, they are hoping it offers hope for the future that we might be able to preserve these amazing species. Uh, but she was originally, she washed up, she was found dead. Yeah, she was found washed up on an island. Uh, she passed away and was beached, so they, they cleaned up her bones. But do you know what she was originally called? I don't know, Nick. What, what, was, what was she originally called? Uh, she was called... Because she's a whale. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Got me. And um, another thing about Hope uh, as well, and I think probably ties into what you're talking about with her name, is that whales are uh, an example of a species that was really heavily hunted, you know, whales, and they did make a, are, are, are making a relatively okay recovery 
recovery. So I think it's an example of how we're actually able to create a, a good benefit and help a species that we previously hunted extremely, almost to extinction. Yeah, it's like, do you know right whales? Yes. Do you know where they get their name? Well, they're not wrong. Well, they were the right ones to hunt. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit depressing. Um, on that note, I've got some more depressing facts in a section of the show I like to call Nick Destroys Your Childhood. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah, Thanks. good. So as I said, Hope replaced Dippy. So Dippy is one of the most famous fossils in the world, right? Wrong. Dippy was not a fossil. Dippy was a cast. Dippy was a model. Uh, basically made a papier-mâché. So she He's was made... based on a real fossil, though, right? Yes. But everyone, when they go in, thinks they're looking at a fossil, but they're actually looking at, yeah, papier-mâché recreation of a Diplodocus. Really well done. Yeah. Craftsmanship. Really nice. Yeah, and there's a few reasons for that. One is, like you said, having such a complete fossil is extremely rare. So Sophie the Stegosaurus is 80% complete, and that's massively unusual. When we display dinosaur fossils, either they'll just be in part, they'll be like a skull, or they will be a composite thing. So we'll be combining lots of fossils, but we, those fossils don't exist. So we'll often just be making models to fill in the gaps of the ones that are missing. And the other thing is that fossils are really heavy. They're not made of bones. They're made of stone. So Dippy, if we were going to display the complete fossil, would be far too heavy to uh, display like that. It, it would be tons and tons of stone, which would almost be impossible. So loads of museums around the world, when you see those complete dinosaur fossils, you're actually just looking at models instead. Yeah, I suppose it also makes sense in like a preservation way as well, because, you know, you only have this one fossil, you you know, it being on display in lights and surrounded by people, it's, you know, in a vulnerable environment instead of like being kept in a in a dark box in an air sensitive room. Hey, so it's, suppose... it's perfectly logical, but still depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's no two ways about it it's a really sad thing because uh, there is that idea that you are looking at the real thing but unfortunately due to practicalities you're not um but it's understandable why not but not everyone understands uh museum collections that well because a lot of people try to steal them did you guys know this uh yeah i think yeah 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 fair so there's a certain irony about um european natural history collections complaining that people are stealing the objects uh considering when you walk around and look at the country of origin on most of them and mm. you think what were we doing there then turns out taking their fossils and a lot of other things a lot of other things but yes there were many people who are not exactly out for revenge but had a similar idea so there's some amazing people. So in Victorian times, there was a huge spate of um, fossil thefts and, and museum thefts. So people would go in and steal stuff from the museum to the point where they even found one person had a modified top hat. Where what they were doing was going in and they had a secret compartment in their hat where they could hide the specimens. Yeah, put it on their head so they could uh, they could steal specimens unhindered. And it was so prevalent that the Natural History Museum started asking people, rather than being like, stop stealing, they were like, when you steal our objects, please steal the label too. Because, <laughs> because without the label, it is completely useless, even if you give it back, because we don't know its provenance or anything. Mm. So I love that as a sort of resigned defeat. It's like, please steal the label. <laughs> 
but this was a big problem where many people would steal from them and then many years down the line they would try and give them back and it was like well we don't know what to do with this we don't know where it's collected from or what it was or things like that and this is obviously pre-photography and digitization without photography let me just say as someone who has tried to identify specimens based on word descriptions of them even when i'm only dealing with like a small set of specimens that i know the thing i'm looking for is in the collection it's just impossible it's just absolutely impossible to find a fossil based on the description of like brown rounded end three to five centimeters long you're like okay it's all of them (laughs) (laughs) even based on like a drawing it's like hard it's yeah it's tricky because you're like is that shading just like artistic or you know is that a thing (laughs) there's been some amazing attempts at theft so recently Someone tried to steal the rhino horn from, I believe it was Tring. There's a logical reason why they might want to steal this rhino horn. So as you probably know, that rhinos are poached for their horns. Their horns are incredibly valuable. So they can get about $65,000 per kilogram of rhino horn. And the average weight for, say, a white rhino horn is about four kilograms. So that means from one white rhino horn, you could get $260,000. Whoa. This chap broke into Tring, uh, armed with his hacksaw, and sawed off the horn and tried to get a getaway, was arrested with this in possession and, and was yeah prosecuted for stealing, uh, without realising as well that obviously the museum had replaced the rhino horn with a plastic one for this very reason. So he went to jail for stealing a plastic mould of a rhino horn. Brilliant. Yeah, but because of the value of rhino horns, that's why they replaced them in museums for the safety of their staff, because... There are great lengths people will go to to steal these and having real rhino horn could actually put the staff in danger. But yeah, there's uh, there's also an amazing guy called uh, Edwin Rist, um, an American. Uh, he came all the way over to England and he stole 299 rare bird skins. Couldn't uh, get an- one more. Huh? I know. Isn't that so annoying? <laughs> with the with the adrenaline pumping, it's hard to count at that high of a number. Maybe he could only fit that many in his top hat. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but this was in Hertfordshire, and he was given a 12-month suspended prison sentence. So why do you think he stole so many rare bird skins? I'm cheating because I know the answer. Is that cheating? Well, I'm not cheating, okay. but I, I know the answer is, so I'm okay, not making yeah. a guess. Because that's how exams work. If you know the answer, name, you can just write it down. You know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was for fishing? For yes. fishing? For bait, tackle, or... Yeah, I think it's telling here that Naomi knows more about natural history museum collections than fishing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was making fishing tackles out of rare bird feathers because he thought that would help him catch fish. That's so upsetting. <laughs> as if they'd be better. As if the, the, the fish would be like, haven't seen that feather in a while. <laughs> I was going to see if this could come up at another time, but I think now is the perfect time to talk about um, about a researcher in the fossil mammal collection in the early 1900s who didn't have a top hat, but he was a regular visitor. He was a mammal specialist. Um, he was known by all the curators and was like pretty much a fixture in the department, but things kept disappearing while he was in. And they were always pretty small and, usually weren't super important. Uh, But it wasn't until they discovered that he had a hollow cane. (gasps) 
that he was stuffing the fossils in that they caught him. Wow. Is there like some, this is making me think that there's some sort of like gentleman's accessories for thievery, like, <laughs> you know, um, niche that I didn't realize is a thing. Yeah, there's a whole shop on Carnaby Street. Yeah. <laughs> it's called gentleman's accessories for thievery. Gentleman's accessories for thievery. Actually, I would love to open that business. <laughs> and not that I, not that I condone thievery, but I, that's a great title. Yeah, but your market, your target market is probably the worst one for a shop. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you would lose money so quickly. That's true. You'd think also, given the like enormous pea coats and like trench coats that people wore in the early 1900s, that they could just put them in their inner pockets. Oh, they did that as well. <laughs> yeah. It's not as fun as like, hiding it in your cane. But that's like, yeah, wow, hiding it in it. He, it must have only been small fossils then that he that he mm. took. Okay. Yeah, about three to five centimeters with a brown end. Yeah, exactly, rounded. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, well, I think that probably brings us to the end of this week's chat on museums. So next week, we're going to continue the theme a bit, but we're going to go behind the scenes. And we're going to talk about what happens in museums where you can't see. Apparently uh, theft. <laughs> but not no not next week you won't that's not what we're going to talk about <laughs> but yeah that does bring us to an end I guess we'll see you next week and it's a goodbye from Nick goodbye it's goodbye from Naomi goodbye and it's goodbye from me goodbye Oh, don't don't publish me saying that about Briar's Owens. I feel like Briar's Owens are going to be the future and I don't want to get on anyone's bad side.